All right, so uh, we are on number 12, I believe, in our list. And so as we said before, um, this is not an exhaustive list to say that this is all that God is. Uh, We know there's things that is our God or makes up who our God is that we will never understand fully until we see him face to face. But these are 15 key attributes of our God that I believe the more we study and learn about these things, the more effectively we can worship God and the more deeper we can understand who he is and what he has for us. And so we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about God is merciful. We talked about God is all-knowing, all-powerful. Uh, we talked about the holiness of God, the justice of God, all those things. And so number 12, we're going to move into God is gracious. God is gracious. And so I believe that's where we are, right? Is everybody on the same? Number 12? Okay. Nobody said we're not there, so I figured we were good. So number 12, God is gracious. God is infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. And again, we have to put this in the rest of the context of the attributes. This is not God giving a free pass. No big deal. Your sin's not a problem. It's God choosing to be gracious while also being completely just and completely holy. And we understand that he desires to show grace to us, his creation. Psalm 145, 8 The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. That's a powerful verse. I love that. What a great summary of God's grace to us. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. This is evidenced every time we blow it as a human race. And God chooses to not just zap, you're gone. I said it this morning. I think we would have been zapping a lot of people if we could. Right? You've driven behind people that you're like, if I could just zap out of creation, okay? Dust, gone. Okay? Because what does James say we're supposed to demonstrate towards people? Be quick to hear, right? We're supposed to listen, but we're supposed to be slow to wrath and slow to speak, right? Stop talking so much, stop getting angry all the time, and listen more. So, where do we get the example of that slow to wrath? We get it from our God. Now, has God demonstrated wrath and judgment on humanity? Of course he has. But study all those examples, and guess what you're going to find? Time and time again, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. Time's coming. You need to repent. Okay, now it's here. God does not judge without opportunity to receive grace. We see it time and time again. Why did Noah spend 120 years preaching repentance? preaching, turning from these things and turning to God, because God was willing to be gracious. One of the coolest things we read about in the Gospels is when Jesus was teaching or performing miracles or doing these different things, more than once, there's religious leaders in the room, Pharisees that hate Jesus, want nothing to do with him. But there's one scripture specifically where it actually says there was the ability or the power to heal all of them. That God was willing to show grace even to the Pharisees who were mocking and ridiculing Jesus if they would just repent and turn to Christ. There was power enough to save them if they would turn and repent. Because Jesus was willing to be gracious. The story of the rich young ruler. Did Jesus know that young man, or what we believe to be a young man, would turn and walk away and choose his wealth over submission to Christ? Yes, of course Jesus did. We've already covered that. He's all-knowing. But yet Jesus demonstrated grace. In what way? He talked to the man. He didn't just say, you're not going to believe. I'm not wasting my time. No, he demonstrated. Here's what you need to understand. He gave him an opportunity. So God is gracious. 
uh, in your, I believe this is in your notes, if mercy is not. Is that in your notes? Oh, no, okay. I couldn't remember what I put in yours and I didn't put in there. But this is something, a, a quote that I love. <clears throat> if mercy is not getting what we do deserve, damnation, grace is getting what we don't deserve, eternal life. And so we talked about mercy in number 11. If mercy is not getting what we do deserve, so God is merciful. We don't get what we've earned. What have we earned? Damnation, separation from God for all eternity in a place called hell. Then grace is getting what we don't deserve, eternal life. As mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt, Tozer writes. This is A.W. Tozer. So grace is his goodness directed towards human debt and demerit. It is by his grace that God imputes merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. It's not just God going, yeah, you're fine. It's him saying, no, 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 no. Christ died for the unrighteous so that the righteousness of Christ could be accredited to your account in the place where all you had merit for was wrath. You had accumulated all of this wrath, Romans 2. We're storing it up. We're storing it up. This is why we can forgive others and not worry about it because God is the judge. You might think, well, they're going to get away with it. These people that commit these heinous acts all over our world. Every day we're hearing another horrible tragedy, another horrible situation. And we might think, man, why are these people getting away with it or not being punished as they should be? Maybe I'll say it that way. We don't have to fear that or worry that because God is righteous. God is just. And whether this side of heaven or that side, God is going to see that everything balances according to the books. And so why can I then claim this grace as a, a beautiful blessing? Because guess what? I had stored up just as much wrath, and this is going to be hard to swallow for some of us, as the individual that shot up that school and killed those children. Like that person's wrath that God was going to give them in their sin and the wrath I accumulated in my sin is no different. But we, we don't think that way humanly. We think, well, I've never done that. And we name the worst possible sin we can think of. I would never do this. We were talking even at lunch today about examples of that uh, with Sanders uncle about how we tend to gauge things and look at things that way. And it's no, no, no. It's all sin for the wages of sin. No S sin. That's the word in the original language literally means all encompassing sin, sin of every kind, sin of every various kind. So here God is gracious. We accumulated all of this debt of, of wrath and judgment. And merely because we responded to the invitation of Christ and said, I repent of my sins. I believe it's so simple. It's so simple. What that a child could even do it. I believe, I trust in Christ. And God imputes his righteousness to us. And now our bank account that was full of wrath is now full of the righteousness of Christ. And when we get to heaven, we don't stand and go, look what I did. It's, no, no, this is all Jesus did this. Why? Because the grace of God. Because grace is a part of who God is, and not just an action he bestows, it means we can trust that grace is eternal. His grace is something we do not earn or lose. If we don't earn it, we can't lose it. Ephesians 2.8, for by, you know, many of you have memorized this or know this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Paul goes on to say there, why does God save us this way? Why does it have to be 
by grace. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 9? Why, why does he save us as a gracious act? Why, why do I need to understand it's all grace that he gives me that I'm saved? Yeah, we're going to boast. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to go, well, I'm better than this guy because I did more, right? I should deserve more. He says, no, no, that no one would boast, but that all of us would have one answer, the glory of God. It's got to be the glory of God. It's got to be the riches of his grace, Ephesians says, on display. Uh, his grace is also sovereign. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. While all of humanity benefits from common grace, and what do we mean by, and we talked about this in our Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People series. When I say common grace, think back to that series, or maybe you've heard this phrase before. What do we mean by the common grace of God? Think back to that, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why, what is common grace? Yeah, so what... Right, so even unbelievers, right, receive a form of grace from God. What's an example of common grace? Okay, and in that example, it's talking about like a farmer, right? The unjust farmer needs rain. The just, now when we say just, we don't mean sinless. We mean one that follows God, one that doesn't. The one that doesn't follow God, he puts his stuff on the ground and he's hoping for rain. He needs rain, right? The person that believes God and trusts in God puts his seed in the ground. Now he's praying for rain. And God shows grace to the unjust farmer and allows rain to hit his ground just as he shows grace to the believer and rain hits his ground. And what happens? Production, right? Increase. And that's a grace of God. God doesn't have to do that. He chooses to do that. What's another example of common grace experienced by all of humanity? Just, just the goodness of God on display. Sure. Okay. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When an unsaved person has a child, they, they are still taken back by the moment of that. And they'll even say it's a miracle. Now they don't use the word as we would, but they say it's miraculous. This idea of life, you know, you know, God bringing in this life and they wouldn't call it all that, but they understand it's a miracle. Why? Because they're experiencing the common grace of God. They don't know it. But God is using that for what purpose? For his glory. And I believe to kind of woo them to him, right? Isn't that what he says in the Old Testament? You kept leaving me, but I kept trying to draw you back, right? You kept leaving, looking for fulfillment other places. Why did you leave me? What did I do that was so bad? He says this, I believe, in Jeremiah. You kept leaving, but why? What did I do that was so horrible? I was good to you. I led you out of Egypt. I did all of this. Why? That you might come unto me and have this relationship, right? So this idea of common grace is experienced by all of humanity to some great degree or another. And there's many other examples we could give. Only those, however, who profess and believe, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, receive saving grace. So common grace also could kind of be the blanket statement for just the invitation to grace. Let me say it that way. The general call. This is where John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, Paul says in Romans 10.13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. These are, these are general calls to grace. Anyone can believe. That's the general call. The saving grace is given to those who profess 
Christ, repent of their sins, and trust in him. They are saved and sealed by grace. And then they're sustained by grace. They don't get left in the cold and dust when they fall or, or stumble. They're sustained by grace. The saving grace is what results in our sanctification or being made holy. So think of it this way. Sanctified means taking something and making it holy. I'm sanctifying this object. And I've always thought about the items in the temple, the, the cups or the you know, utensils or things like that they used in the temple. Those things were made of the same materials that another cup would be made of. The difference is the purpose that they were set aside for. That's why when those things were stolen and taken away to Babylon, that was an issue, not because you took this really special cup made of special things. No, this cup's been designated as an act of worship to God. In the same sense, when we are saved, we are sanctified, completely made holy. Not, hopefully one day I'll be holy enough to get into heaven. I'm completely holy, set apart for the glory of God, for the purpose of God. But as I live in this world, guess what the Spirit of God is doing? As we are, again, talking about this morning, maturing in that relationship. He is sanctifying me. I have been sanctified. I'm holy, fully in Christ, completely sin-free as far as my debt with God is concerned. But I'm in this life, and I'm being made holy. Meaning, as I grow in Christ, my thoughts are different. My feelings are different. Um, Things that used to be a temptation aren't a temptation anymore. Why? Because I've grown in Christ and he's given me victory over those things. I'm seeing him mature me into the image of Christ. So I'm being sanctified and one day I'll be completely set apart, no flesh, no temptation with him forever, which leads to that idea of glorification, where now I'm completely, John says it as, when I see him, I will be like him. Not deity, not similar in deity, but I will be like him, meaning I will have the knowledge I need to have. I'll be set aside completely to the worship of God, and it's going to be an amazing, amazing day. So how do we get there? We get there by grace. We're not sanctified and continue to be sanctified by what we do. God is graciously working in us. So as a believer, when I stumble in sin, 1 John 1, 9 was written to the church. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is that daily washing we all need, right? And I've always said it this way, raising two boys, showers are needed. Pretty much, they don't always happen, but needed daily when they were younger because they're boys and they get dirty every day. No one would think it's okay to take a shower or a bath once and then not take another shower or a bath for 30 days. Okay, you could think that. No one would want to hang out with you for very long, but you could think that. In the same way, we've been cleansed in Christ, but as we live in this world, guess what? We stumble. We, we don't always do exactly what God asks us to do. We get daily dirt on us, and we need to wash that daily. And that's what First John is referring to, crying out in grace and saying, I need to be cleansed. Not saved again, but cleansed daily. So, he does all of this by his grace that we might live for him and enjoy him for all eternity. So as we've said every week, and again, this is just for you to think about. Maybe jot down a note or whatever. But the fact that God is gracious, that's an attribute of God. It's not just something he does, it's who he is. How does this attribute speak to you? So right now, between you and the Lord, just in your heart there in your mind, I want you to dwell on this for just a second. How does the attribute that God is gracious speak to you and in your Christian life right now? So take a moment and think about that. Number 13, got a couple more, and I think we'll get through all of them tonight.
Number 13, God is loving. God is loving. God infinitely, unchangingly loves us. God infinitely, unchangingly loves us. Now, I know when we say in churches today, God is loving, some of us have experienced or heard the shift in the church away from the truth of God's holiness, justice, wrath, and it's all about the mercy, grace, and love of God. Just driving in tonight, there was a song on the radio that was just really emphasizing love is all you need, love is all you need. And I was like, Didn't, I've heard this before. Um, John Lennon said that. But um, so I'm listening to this song, and I'm like, okay, yes, I get what they're saying, but the, it, it was just constant. And I think sometimes as Christians, in the day and age we live today, we hear that sometimes so much, we automatically go to the other end of the spectrum and we go, yes, but God is wrathful too. Like we want to automatically just go, stop with all the love stuff. Like it's mushy and hippie and all this stuff, right? But we have to remember that while, yes, in some places, in some churches or some groups or denominations, one extreme or the other is being emphasized. It's either God is only love or God is only wrath, right? Because some of you grew up in churches where you were like, God's never happy. Like, God's angry all the time. <laughs> like, like, all that, you go to church and all you hear about is God smiting this person and bringing judgment on this and wiping out this whole people group. And you're like, you're terrified of God. Not in a good way, but in a bad way. And probably because you're terrified of the preacher and you think the preacher is like God. And all they do is yell and scream. So we want to be careful. We don't want to say either of those extremes is right. God is just and wrath and, and judgment. But God is also mercy and grace and love. And if you ever wonder the balance between the love of God and the, the righteousness of God or the, the holiness of God, the justice of God, if you ever struggle to see what does that look like, just read the life of Christ. Jesus was the complete balance of holy, righteous anger at times and complete compassionate grace and love at times. And it was picture perfect. You could see all of it in Jesus why did he say to Philip, how long have you been with me? And yet you say, when are we going to see the Father? You've seen the Father. He's right here. You've seen him in me. And so again, we have to understand that God is loving. God doesn't love as we love. God is loving. There's a difference. He does loving things. He loves us, obviously. But it's not something he does. It's who he is. He is loving. First John 4, 7 and 8. And I believe this is in your notes. Beloved, which is an amazing term for the church, to believers, and that we are beloved by God. Uh, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, that's a pretty harsh statement that John is making here. Again, John, this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, and John was a very black and white person. It's truth and lie. It's right and wrong. It's love or hate. There's no gray area with the Apostle John, uh, which is where he got the passion, the zeal that he gets called one of the sons of thunder. Um, and so remember, him and his brother James were like, hey, these people don't like you, Jesus. They won't let you sleep here. Let's smite the whole village with fire. Let's just kill them all. Um, and Jesus says, calm down. Like, take it easy, okay? And so again, we think John, John 3, 16, oh, God is love and mushy, mushy, mushy. But John actually is one of the, his gospel is very much straightforward and to the point. And here we see this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What is John saying here? If you claim, and he says this all through 1 John, which was a test to believers to know they're really believers. 
He was saying to them, if you can say you know, know God, you can say you love Jesus all you want, but it's not manifesting in your life. And if you walk around with hateful words to people, you treat people disrespectfully and without love, you're not showing loving kindness to people in need, you're not being compassionate to those in certain situations, you can say all you want you love Jesus, but you don't know him. Because if you knew him, his love would be on display in you. This is not saying that if you say a hateful word to someone or aren't loving at some point in your life that you've lost your salvation and never had it. I think what he's saying here is if you can continue in a state of unloving nature, like you just, you're just not loving, you're not kind, you're not compassionate, for a period of time without conviction, which is kind of what he says in 1 John 3 when he says if you sin, if any man sin, he is of this father, the devil. He's not saying that you won't fall into a sin because we know that contradicts because he says in chapter 2, we ask that you sin not, but if any man sin, you have an advocate with the Father. So what is he saying? It's this continual, habitual lifestyle. And I've got to be honest with you. I think social media reveals to people who people really are. <laughs> because people get on social media or other platforms, not a lot of love. Not a lot of loving things are being said about other people. Especially, I find it interesting, I'm on some different ministry pages. And oh man, those comments, not a lot of love. A lot of anger. And I understand, I'm not talking about calling truth, truth, and a lie, a lie. But man, let's be really careful that we don't forget these people are trapped in sin, don't know Jesus. And even if they do know Jesus, we still need to love them. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Serve them. Give them a cup of cold water if they need that. And where do we get that modeled before us? In the life of Christ. He was persecuted and beaten, and yet he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So again, God is loving. And I know we live in a day and age where it's like one extreme or the other. All I'm saying is we can speak truth and not compromise and still be loving about it. You can be respectful of someone as you're disagreeing with them and having that conversation. But the name calling and the insults and all of this nonsense, I just, I don't see how that's loving. I don't... I, I think you can preach truth and speak truth without being a jerk about it, I guess is what I'm saying. And so we need to remember that reality. It goes on to say, uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, in his book, God's Love, I love this quote. He says this, love, the word staggers before its task of even describing the reality. The word love staggers before its task of even describing the reality. As with all attributes, we can only begin to comprehend God's love in light of his other attributes. The love of God is eternal, sovereign, unchanging, and infinite. God does not merely love as we love one another. He is at his core love. It is part of his nature. It's part of his nature. He wants to show you love. And it's not a love that we understand as this conditional, keep me happy and I'll keep loving you type love. Because we've already established his grace was given to undeserving sinners. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he die for us? Because he loves you and he wants to glorify the Father. And John talks about this. That Jesus has a love for you. He says that where I am, there you may be also. Why? Because he loves you. And so we need to understand that he is love. I know it's been blown out of proportion in some ways. But let's not lose the reality that scripture does clearly to say that he is love. Number 14. Oh, no, we got to do our question. I almost forgot. I made it through 13 of them and I almost forgot. Um, so take a moment. Think about that reality. 
And how does, between you and God, how does this attribute speak to you that God is loving? How does the love of God speak to you in your Christian life? All right. Number 14, God is holy. God is holy. He is infinitely, unchangingly perfect. Revelation 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. I can't imagine what heaven's going to be like. I know people say, I can't wait to see it because I think it's going to be like this. I, I, honestly, I can't imagine it um, because the idea of being before the throne with literally uncountable amounts of, is countable a word? Unnumbered, let's use that phrase, uh, amounts of angels that we read in Scripture, tens upon tens upon tens upon tens. Those aren't literal numbers. Those are meant to give us the idea of just this vastness. Just angels shouting praise, singing praise to the Father, to, to the Godhead, to the Son, and to the Spirit. And what are they crying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Like there is a holiness there. The word holy, as we've kind of talked about with sanctified, means sacred or set apart, revered or divine. And yet none of these words is adequate to describe the awesome holiness of our God. John MacArthur writes this about God's holiness. Of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes him and in reality is a uh, summation of his other attributes. The word holiness refers to his separateness, his otherness, which I think is an amazing way to describe his holiness, his otherness. The fact that he is unlike any other being. It indicates his complete and infinite perfection. Holiness is the attribute of God that binds all the others together. A great quote there from, from MacArthur about just the holiness of God, the otherness of God. There's nothing like him. We've been going through um, Exodus on Wednesday nights. And I think we just finished up chapter four, I think. Um, and so we talked about the burning bush experience. And when Moses gets near the burning bush, what does God say from the, out of the bush? He says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. This is the first time in revealed scripture through Genesis and the beginning of Exodus that this idea of a holiness of God is put on display. Now we know that God is holy the entire time. But this is the first time that we read this type of a situation where God says, hey, this is holy ground. Now, again, it's an amazing moment for Moses to realize who God is and what God is. But it reminds us that God has a holiness that we can't even understand. And I'm always amazed when you read about stories about people having either visions uh, of the throne, visions of God, um, or we're there, however you want to look at it. And, and what happens every single time? There's a humility, instant humility, awareness of sin. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me, but why woe is me? What was his, he said, I, I dwell with the people that what? And I have unclean lips. So before God's presence, that's what we always see every single time. A humility, an awareness of sin. There's an awareness of grace. Now, Isaiah didn't necessarily cry out for grace. He said, woe is me, humility. I'm sinful. And God showed grace in doing what? Purging his, his lips, right? Now, this is, again, this idea of, he didn't literally say, yeah, your mouth is your only problem. Let me take care of that, and then you'll be perfect. No, no, no. He was merely demonstrating to Isaiah, I can use you, and I'm going to remove this sin issue that you think is dividing us. That's kind of the idea. And so there's an awareness of grace and the receiving of that grace when we humble ourselves. 
And ultimately, why does all of this happen? So that God can be glorified and we will serve him. And you see this every single time, some level or another. The reality is, guess what happens when we get before God's word? Humility, awareness of sin, awareness of grace, the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. God is glorified and we serve him. And so whether we're before God's throne, as some Old Testament prophets were, literally or in a vision, or before God's word for us in the church, I don't need to go to the throne to understand God's holiness. I can read about those who were there. So God doesn't have to bring me to the throne and go, well, what do you think? <laughs> I can read about it. He's given me his word so I will know his holiness. That God is holy means that he is endlessly always perfect. And his standard for us is perfection as well. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, Jesus says in Matthew five, forty-eight. So how in the world can I be perfect like the father is perfect? I can't without grace without mercy, without Christ. Without Christ taking that place for us and dying for our sins, we would all fall short of God's holy standard. Thankfully, the Christian will never have to experience God's holy wrath poured out. Through Christ's death and resurrection, the penalty for our sins was paid and we were imputed or credited with Christ's righteousness. Now when God looks on us, he sees Christ's perfect holiness. And many of you have heard this before. Sin is the distance between where our arrow hits the target and the bullseye. That difference is sin. But when Christ was given on the cross, buried and rose again, and we received him as our savior, our arrow is no longer existent. Now we get the bullseye because Christ hit the bullseye. And so we've been given that, that righteousness. Number 15, sorry, number 14. I'm so ahead of myself tonight. How does this attribute speak to you? So take a moment. And think about the reality of God's holiness. I know we're going a little quick tonight. But how does that attribute speak to you? How does the holiness of God speak to you in your Christian life? How does it maybe make you think about some things? I'll be honest. One of the things that when I think about the holiness of God that directly comes to my mind for me is my prayer life. Not so much how often I pray because I don't pray nearly like I should. I don't know if any of us could really say we do that, but how I pray. And I'm not talking about going before God like, oh, I hope he doesn't beat me up today. Like, not like that, but we go before the throne of God as much as we want. Like, like you can go at any time and lay anything before him. Any, the Bible says that we can lay our cares. That word cares means anxieties. Anything that makes us anxious, Philippians says, be anxious for nothing but in all things through prayer. We go and we lay those before him because of Christ. And if it wasn't for Jesus, you'd go to the throne room and you ain't getting in. You, well, you'd get in at one point, but it wouldn't be for good things. We go freely, boldly. Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace that you might receive mercy and grace in your time of need. How can I do that? Through Christ. And so when I come, I think sometimes we take the ease that we come in prayer for granted and we think it's somehow about us. And we come with this kind of flippant attitude, like he has to sit there and listen to me. Man, he is a holy God. And I think sometimes as Christians experiencing grace, praise God for grace. I'm not, not saying we shouldn't be thankful for that. But do we take that for granted where we go with this ease to the point of almost a flippant kind of nonchalant. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm coming because I need this. We treat him more like a genie than a holy God. And so for me... That directly hits with prayer for me, the holiness of God. Number 15, 
God is glorious. God is glorious. And again, as we, as I was kind of coming across different resources, kind of putting this curriculum together uh, with this list, it had many, many quotes already in it. And so I kept a lot of those quotes over. And so uh, hopefully these have been helpful to you. I'll give you a couple more here before we finish up. So God is glorious. He is infinitely beautiful and great. The glory of God is great. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. Uh, Habakkuk 3, 4. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. His radiance is like sunlight. Like, have you ever tried to look right at the sun on a bright, sunny day? You can't do it for very long before you have to shield your eyes away. It's greater than that. Mount of Transfiguration, remember when Jesus was on the mount? And he gave just a taste. I don't think it was the full glory that that was being seen there. But Mark describes it as, he says, his robe was so white, no launderer, no professional laundry person could make a garment that white. It It was so white. Even somebody that makes their living on making garments as white as possible, as clean as possible, I've never seen. It's never been that clean. Now, we know Mark, as in John Mark, wasn't present at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was, and we know that Mark was influenced heavily by Peter. And in Mark's gospel, we see the influence of Peter, but Peter was there. And Peter says, man, when we looked at that, it was, it was more than you can put into words. It was overwhelming. One of the quotes that was in the curriculum, John Piper defines God's glory like this. And if you want to, uh, John Piper's kind of known to be really about the glory of God. Um, and it sounds funny to say, but he has written a lot about it. He's kind of one of those things he's really over his ministry, um, really emphasized in some of his writings. But John Piper defines God's glory like this. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. That's a, a sentence in and of itself you can really dwell on. The infinite beauty, and I am focusing on the manifestation of his character and his worth and his attributes, he says. All of his perfections and greatness are beautiful as they are seen. And there are many of them. And that is why I use the word manifold. There is a greatness and a manifold of just the beauty and the glory. One author said it this way. When we think of the glory of the Lord, the image of brilliant light often comes to our minds. That is certainly appropriate as scripture often describes the glory of God in terms of light that shines brighter than anything that we experience on earth. So I want you to think about the brightest day whether you were at the beach and the water was reflecting. But one of those days where literally it almost hurt your eyes to not have sunglasses on. It was so bright. That is not even going to compare to what we're going to see when we see the glory of God. The Bible says in the new heaven and new earth, we don't need a sun because we have the glory of God. Just imagine that for a second. You don't need the sun because his glory is so bright. So God is glorious. And again, as we pray, let's think on that. Sometimes we rush right into prayer with our lists, right? Heal this, do this, take care of that. Please do this. Great. See you later. Spend a few moments in prayer just dwelling on his beauty and on his glory. I know it's hard to imagine, but one day we'll see it face to face. So last time I'm going to ask you this. How does this attribute speak to you? Between you and God, his glory, how does the attribute speak to you?
So in conclusion to this list that we've gone through for a couple of weeks now, after every attribute, I wanted to ask us to consider how that specific attribute speaks to us. I believe if we don't pause and think through each inherent quality, we can neglect to give our God the worth and praise he deserves. When we quickly, quickly acknowledge the goodness of God, for example, but uh, to really meditate on that really brings a deeper joy to our soul. I would ask, after hearing and looking into these 15 qualities, one last question. It's just for you and God. How will this study change your daily relationship with God? How will this study, just going through these 15 attributes, how will it not only affect you individually in that moment, but how will it change your daily life with God? How will it encourage you, strengthen you, keep your mind focused on the things above, not on the things below? And however that is that God is speaking to you, I would encourage you to just dwell on that this week in your prayer time, in your study time, and don't let the world dictate who our God is or isn't. Let the word of God tell us who he is, and then we worship him appropriately based on his word, not on how we feel, not on what we see, right? We walk by faith, not by sight. I know the world's crazy. It's getting crazier. That means the Bible's true because it says things will get worse and worse. But nowhere does it say, so because it's really bad, go ahead and quit. Go ahead and give up. God's left his throne. God's done saving people. No, no, no. There is nothing in the word of God that says God can't bring a revival like that. And by the way, I think he is. I don't think God's ever stopped reviving. Now, sometimes it comes in an individual or a small group, but reviving is just anytime Ephesians comes to be true, where somebody realizes their sins, repents, and Jesus quickens them and makes them alive. That's a revival. And I think we can dwell on that and be excited for that. Stop just looking for the big moments, the, the burning bush experiences. Enjoy the little praises, the little blessings, and when God shows up, rejoice and be excited for that. Don't let this media and social media and the world and these crazy leaders, right? Don't let them dictate to you what God is doing or not doing. He's in control. He's never left his throne. And we can rejoice in that. Because guess what? His will is going to happen. We said that before with providence. What he said will happen will happen. And for his glory and our blessing. And we get to be a part of that. So praise him for that. So let's pray and be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We know, Lord, that there's many things in this world, Lord, that can distract us and pull us away. But we're not surprised by that because as we've already covered, Lord, weeks ago, that this is a fallen world and we live with fallen man. And there's opportunities around every corner to get our eyes off of you. But I pray that as we just dive into your word, we realize who you are. Lord, I know these were 15 attributes that you possess, but Lord, we really could go so much deeper. This is just scratching the surface. But I'm so thankful that we can know these things to be true. And we can hold on to these things. Lord, I say all that I said tonight about trusting you no matter what goes on around us. But Lord, that's a lot easier to say when we're not going through something. We're not getting those phone calls. We're not getting that tragedy. We're not experiencing that hurt. And so, Lord, I pray that maybe there's those in this room, this room right now, Lord, that aren't experiencing that. Everything seems to be good. But, Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds. And in the weeks and months and years ahead, maybe somebody in this room is going to go through a storm. It's not really a matter of if, it's just when. 
So I pray that these things that we're going through tonight will not just be things that we store in our knowledge, kind of interesting things we hold on to, but they will become practical, everyday resources that we go to. And again, Lord, I know it's easy to say when we're not in it, but I truly believe that when we purpose in our heart to dwell on these things, that you will bring them to our remembrance when we're going through that storm. It's easy to forget that you are gracious, that you're merciful. But Lord, help us to remember those things when we are tempted to forget them. And again, Lord, not that we are glorified or promoted, but that your name and your fame goes forward. That somebody would come to know you, that your church would be strengthened, your glory would be on display. And so, Father, again, we thank you for all of this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.